Samajna Trimanandasya, Chanajana Salakaya, Chakshuranoitanyena Tasmai Sri Gurave Namaha. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my spiritual master has opened my eyes with the torchlight of knowledge. I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him. It's interesting, I just got a uh, an email. They were having great difficulty with the whole concept of Krishna encouraging a war. And their, their idea, of course, and I went through a similar sense when I began to study Bhagavad Gita, that, wow, here's God encouraging, encouraging a battle. The question was there, how can the all-loving, all-compassionate, all-merciful, peaceful God be giving direction to his friend to engage in battle. I, the concept, I can't reconcile the concept. Of course, he didn't state it in quite those words. But the point is there that it seems inappropriate that if God is to give us the, the highest theistic presentation of spiritual knowledge, he would choose such a setting. The setting of the discourse is really not of great significance. Everybody in material life is always perplexed by one problem or another. Generally, we find there's always an outreach to the supreme when there's a death in the family or there's a severe severe tribulation. But death is probably the, the real place where people start to question their reality. Things are set on their ear at death. Everybody's standing around the funeral home and, and they're, they're thinking, and it's, it's a traumatic time. Things are, are changed. The, the, the parents die, the grandparents die, the... God forbid the younger child dies before their parents. And we immediately step back and, and why? Why me, God? Or why them, God? Or why my loving companion, son, father, grandfather, friend? Why? Then we may contemplate our condition within this material world for 10 or 15 minutes. Maybe for a couple days. Depending on how close we are. Maybe for a little bit longer time. So whatever condition it is, here we have one condition where you have a, a warrior on a battlefield and it's like well, the closest we can see something like this in history, because generally we fight our battles on foreign soil. Other party is generally doesn't even speak the same language as us. But there is in recent history, uh, we have the civil war here on, and there are civil wars in other countries. And in that war, we also had a situation similar to this situation. 
that Arjuna, the warrior, is confronted with having to fight with his kinsmen. Because in the Civil War, brother fought against brother, cousin fought against cousin. The point I'm trying to make is the circumstance for the delivery of this transcendental knowledge is not what is most significant. What is most significant in Bhagavad Gita is the message that the Supreme Lord is giving to someone that is receptive to hearing spiritual knowledge. The circumstance of the battle is making Arjuna receptive. The death in a family gives the priest the opportunity to speak to us about affairs of the heart involving the Supreme Lord. Krishna has a receptive audience here in Arjuna. Arjuna is like, whoa, these are my family members who I'm being conf- who are on the other side. I don't know what to do. I don't want to fight against my teachers, my family members. Is it really worth it for me to fight in this battle even if the cause is just? Because there'll be other repercussions. We'll get on to that. But what's happening here? Let's we're setting the scene. Observing the armies on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. Dhritarashtra, a little bit of history, he's blind. He's blind not only do his eyes not work physically, but he's truly blind to spiritual matters. He doesn't have a higher sense of moral principle. He's more interested in the diplomacy of the battle in order to enthrone his son who is he's not of good character he's not qualified to lead Dhritarashtra right here in the beginning he gives himself away but he tries to cover it up he brings up the fact that the battle is happening on a religious field where religious sacrifices are performed this is where the battlefield he's concerned he expresses his concern to Sanjaya in a very covered way. Is there a chance that the influence of this place of pilgrimage, this place of sacrifice, this Kurukshetra, will the participants in the battle, because of the location, rethink their position? Is there a chance that they'll settle their differences and not fight? Now, he doesn't want that. He wants them to fight. He wants his son to be enthroned. Sanjaya, O king, after looking over the army arranged in military formation by the sons of Pandu, King Duryodhan, which is Dhritarashtra's son, went to his teacher and spoke the following words. Dhritarashtra is somewhat relieved. Oh, well, the place of pilgrimage is not going to have an effect. And they will fight. Duryodhan, first of all, approaches the guru of military science, who's in charge of arranging his army. This is done in a very diplomatic way. 
a very diplomatic way. Again, the commentaries of, of Vishwanath and Baladev bring out, bring out these points that Dronacharya, at one point Dronacharya, who's the military commander for the Kurus, under the direction of Dhritarashtra, at one point earlier in his life, there, he had an argument with another king, Drupada, and Drupada had to give up some of his land to Drona. He didn't, wasn't really happy about the situation, having to give up this land. So he performed a sacrifice. Just like now, when we have a problem, we sue. So, you know, it's natural. When you have a problem, you go to court and you sue somebody. That's the way you can, you can put a, a, a curse on their life. Well, uh, Drupada, he had a different course. This is in a different age of man. And his course was he performed a sacrifice. And by this sacrifice, there were two offspring that came as a result of the sacrifice. Drupadi, who later became the wife of the Pandavas, and uh, Drishta Dumna. Imagine the character of Dronacharya, who's a military guru. He trains warriors, and he trains them perfectly. He knew of Drupada's sacrifice and knew that Drupada's son would be able to kill him in battle. He had such character that when Dristadjumna came to him and said, will you please teach me the military science, how to fight? He didn't blink an eye, certainly. Such a man of character. He didn't think, yeah, but you know, you can kill me, so if I teach you how to fight... That's not in my best interest. He had such character that, that, that he went ahead and he trained Distradumna. Unfortunately for him, later during the battlefield of Kurukshetra, it cost him his head. Because <laughs> Distradumna did kill him in this battle. Dronacharya had good character. He just kept bad company. We really got to be careful of the company we keep. Because he's on the wrong side. On one side, you have the Supreme Lord and you have the rightful heirs to the kingdom. And on the other side, you have those... You have Dhritarashtra's son. He's not a man of character. So you have Dronacharya and Grandfather Bhishma who are great warriors, but they're on the side of Duryodhana. They were in bad company. It really affected their character too. And when did that really come out? At one point, the wife of the Pandavas, Drupadi, she was lost in a gambling match. 
I won't get into the history, but it's very interesting that one of the significant causes of the Battle of Kurukshetra was the attempt by Duryodhana and his party to disrobe Drupadi publicly. And both Dronacharya and Grandfather Bhishma sat by silently and did not protest. Duryodhana is concerned at the beginning of the battle that his commander-in-chief, Dronacharya, will not take up arms against the Pandavas. These opening verses up through the 11th text are presented in a very diplomatic way in order to make Dronacharya a little bit angry and engage him in the battle. And first, there's a veiled insult by Duryodhana regarding Dristadumna. <laughs> you trained the boy that can kill you. <laughs> Think about it. So naturally, we have to understand, in order to understand what's going on, you have to understand the character of the Kshatriya spirit, the fighter, the warrior. He has a different character. He doesn't take insult well. When he's challenged, he rises to the challenge. So that's what's going on here diplomatically by Duryodhana. He's diplomatically trying to, to get Dronacharya to do his job perfectly. He's doing it in such a way that he can win his engagement in this war. So naturally, you're, you would think, well, is this really of significance in understanding the instruction of Bhagavad Gita, this history, this interrelationship? And it is, because we have to understand that this, this is a true circumstance. There's a lot of scholars that look to this great theistic text, Bhagavad Gita. They do not consider it a literal event. And it's important for us to know that it, it happened 5,000 years ago. These events actually transpired. And to understand the circumstances around it, all the circumstances around it can be fully understood if we are to study Mahabharata. We can understand all the history of the Pandavas in that context and what brings them to this stage of engagement in the battle and the great animosity that has built up and the great injustice that's been served to them throughout their lives. Because remember, they, their father wasn't there. As children, they couldn't be given the kingdom and... Their uncle didn't want to give it to them. A little thing, a little bit of knowledge about the warriors. Duryodhana first speaks of the Pandavas side of the battle. And in discussing those warriors, 
They're all Maharata. What that means is a Maharata is one who can fight alone with 10,000 archers, who is an expert in both weapons and scripture. 10,000. This is just figurative. This can't be literal. How can one man stand up against so many? Again, we have to take ourselves to this point in time to understand the context. Warriors were equipped not only with physical weapons, like we're accustomed to, they were fully conversant in the sciences of weaponry and mantra. Inconceivable to us. What do we have? We have our smart bombs. Well, they had even smarter bombs. We remember after the battlefield of, after the battle of Kurukshetra, Asvatama, he released a personalized nuclear device. Now, our scientists, our weapons makers, who met in the desert some 50 years ago and created their little atomic package after some years, it wasn't personalized, was it? When they finally used it, it blew up a whole city and it killed everybody. It may still be killing people. <laughs> they don't really know. Imagine the release of a mantra where the device kills just the individual. So this gives us a little his bit of historical perspective. 5,000 years ago, men had a lot more power, knowledge, and influence than they have today. So when we hear of this kind of these kind of warriors who could fight against 10,000 archers, it doesn't become so, so inconceivable. When we consider the mystic powers that they may have, the yogic siddhas, and we've heard and we've learned a little bit about yogis, yogic siddhas, become smaller and the smallest, greater and the greatest, control other people's minds, go wherever you want in the universe, create your own planet. These are some pretty powerful things. Being able to fight with 10,000 soldiers, not, not unreasonable. We need to see it in perspective. Duryodhan, he first looks to the other side, and then he says, but on our side, we also have very powerful fighters. Of all of them, Bhishma, Grandfather Bhishma, he is, he is the most grand. So you need to take up a position where when Grandfather Bhishma is fighting, he's fully protected. So in this way, diplomacy was employed and engagement in the battle was, was definitely going to take place. I want to read a little bit from Baladev Vidyabhushan's introduction to Bhagavad Gita. Now you notice Baladev Vidyabhushan, this is, he wrote this, his commentary on Bhagavad Gita about 300 years ago, or actually a little less than that. If you remember when we were reviewing the introduction to Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada pointed out the, the subjects that are, that are contained in Bhagavad Gita, five main subjects. Now of these five items, Isvara and Jiva have consciousness. 
And I, I, there's something in here that just really caught me. 18 chapters of Bhagavad Gita. First six deal with karma yoga. Actually, with niskarma, meaning not doing, not engaging in karmic re- activity for a karmic result, engaging in karmic activity as a duty. Okay, niskarma, karma. Right in the center of the Bhagavad Gita, we have the heart, which deals with bhakti yoga. And the last six chapters deal with jnana yoga, knowledge. Baladev Vijibhushan, he says a very interesting thing. He says, the middle six chapters are there. The bhakti is put in the middle because karma without touching bhakti is of no significance. Knowledge without touching bhakti is of no significance. So, unless we put bhakti where it touches both karma and jnana, then those would not be of significance unless they're touched by bhakti. That's why the center six chapters are the heart and deal with bhakti yoga. Interesting perspective Mm -hmm. that he brings out. Uh, why? Because you'd think we'd end with bhakti because that's the highest. But he gives a different perspective. Uh, the three methods of attaining the Lord are karma, jnana, and bhakti. Karma is regarded as an authorized method because it assists jnana and bhakti by purifying the heart. Does that make sense? I'll read on and then we'll discuss. Through performance of prescribed actions... With renunciation of doership and renunciation of the promised fruits of those actions. And thus it brings attainment of the Lord gradually. The duties prescribed by the Shrutis in the process of Karma Yoga are devoid of violence. That is the main element in them. In the Moksha Dharma, Mahabharat Santaparva. In the discussion between father and son, the method of karma characterized by nonviolence is regarded as secondary because of its indirect nature, whereas the other two methods are direct. The point being made is we engage in activities. When we look at the practice of bhakti and the gradual elevation of the soul through the stages of bhakti yoga, Adao Shraddha Tata Sadhu Sangotha Bhajana Kriya. We come to the stage of Bhajana Kriya. Bhajana Kriya is activity. It, it looks like karma, doesn't it? Chant a prescribed number of rounds of the holy name. Rise early in the morning. Abstain from certain karmic activity to purify your mind and senses. Don't slaughter animals for the tongue. No intoxication. No illicit sex. No gambling. Give in charity. These are activities which appear to be karmic. We have a body and we're engaging the body in an activity. But that activity of bhakti, activity that's looking like karma, that what is it we don't like about karma? 
Anybody have anything against karma here? <laughs> it can affect like um, your next life. You know, bad karma. Can... What about good karma? Should we see a distinction, good or bad karma? Maybe because it has consequences. Yes. And any consequence on this plane is what? It's bad. It's binding. Bad because why? Because it keeps us on this plane. Good karma, it may seem good. This is good karma. Uh, I'm going to give in charity and what's going to be the result of my charitable giving? Uh, people will give to me. Well, What's wrong with that? Well, to get the result of the giving, I got to take a birth again. And the other result is by getting, I might be attached to what I get, and then I'm then again I'm drugged back. Even good karma is no good. It's no good from the spiritual platform if we look things look at things from the level of the transcendentalists, from the sadhus, from the spiritual masters, karma, bad, no matter if it's bad or good. Instant or long term, all of it is nothing you want to be involved with. On the material plane, it's simply going to keep us in here, in exploitive mentality. Take, take, take. Even when we give with mind, the mind is always thinking, always calculating. Or giving, what am I giving for? I'm giving so I can take. Someone, well, may not take, but others will give, which will be the same as taking. So, yeah, karma, bad or good, not good. So the point is, Krishna begins his discourse on Bhagavad Gita talking about karmic activity, about engagement in such a way that it's nis, niskar. It doesn't have a reaction. It doesn't have a reaction. We can engage in this world. We have no choice in the matter. We're here. Somehow or other, we have come into this environment. In this environment, what is it? Jiva. What's that mean? Each living entity is the food for other. Can't go without it. Can't live a moment. On this plane, you can't make it to the next day without sacrificing somebody else. This is not the place for a gentleman. That's what the sadhus say. No gentleman would live in a place where the only way he can, can survive is through exploitation. Luckily for us, the great sadhus give us a formula whereby even in our eating, we can be doing that niskarma without being wrapped up in reaction. How? Offer it for sacrifice. Everything offered in sacrifice. Everything we need to learn how to, everything we perform in this plane has to be done as a matter of sacrifice. Yat karoshi yadashnasi yajjahosi didasiyat. Yat tapasyasi kaute 
All that you do, all that you eat, all that you offer and give away should be done as an offering unto me. That's Krishna's directions in Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna. If you conduct your affairs in that consciousness, then no karma. Still have to eat, still have to breathe, still have to work. And if you are Arjuna, what? You still got to fight. No choice in the matter. We have our destiny. We have come here due to our karma. Now, Krishna is instructing in Bhagavad Gita how to turn it off. He's instructing Arjuna how to turn off the karma. We'll read one other thing here. One who has faith in the scripture, meaning Bhagavad Gita, I'm reading now from the introduction of Baladeva Vidyabhushan, who is studying and following the path of Dharma and has conquered the senses, is qualified for this scripture, Adhikari. In other words, understanding Bhagavad Gita, not available to everybody. Not everybody will get it. One who has faith in this scripture and who is steady in following the path of Dharma and has conquered the senses is qualified for this scripture. Adhikari. What does that mean we give up? Even if we still have some attachments in this world? Let's read on. There are three types of qualified persons. First, called Sanista, performs his prescribed duties of Varna as a form of worship of Hari, the Supreme, with desire to see Swarga Loka. Footnote. Because in the commentary it says, see Swarga Loka. Now Swarga Loka is what? The heavenly planets, where you live for tens of thousands of years in one body, where you don't experience the miseries that we experience on this plane. Everybody there has wealth and, and mystic opulence that we can't even conceive of, even within the material world. So the footnote here is, the Sanista devotee performs Niskarma Karma Yoga. Okay, We've talked about Niskarma Karma means we have to do something, but if we do it, yat karoshi, yat ashnoshi, for Krishna as sacrifice, then it's not going to have a reaction for us. Followed by jnana and astanga yoga, and finally realizes the Lord. Therefore, his desire to see Swargaloka is for curiosity. To see the Lord's powers and not to enjoy. So the bhakta may also want to see the whole of the material universe, which now we're limited. We can see, well, we can travel around this planet and see India and China and France and Hawaii and South America. And we can't go to the moon or the sun. We can't go to Brahma's planet, Indra's planet. We can't go down to the hellish planets to check them out. Unless you want to work well, you can go there, but I wouldn't recommend it. the The way to get there is easy. 
It's not a one-way ticket, but it uh, can seem like a one-way ticket. <laughs> to see the Lord's powers and not to enjoy. Those performing sakarma karma desire to enjoy swarga. Sakarma, I want the result of my activities. Niskarma, don't want the result. All right. Sanista performs his prescribed duties, desiring to see. The second type is called Paranista, follows his prescribed duties to set an example for others and at the same time engages in bhakti to the Lord. Doesn't even care to see anything material. He's already fully fixed in transcendental exchange with God. He's surpassed everything on this plane. So whatever he engages, when he engages in bhakti, what's his purpose? Simply to give an example to mankind. Like a Lord Jesus. Or other great saintly people, which to the Western mind, we, we, we don't have that knowledge too much. Of these two types, also follows the rules and the principles of the ashram. The third type, called Nirapeksha, whose heart has been purified by the austerities, job of truthfulness and other actions, is absorbed only in worshipping Hari, performing only bhakti, not following varna duties. He does not follow the duties of any ashram. These transcendentalists who have come to this platform, these platforms, those that still have, even have a desire to fully explore the material world, or those that are free of even that desire, and those that are so spiritually advanced that they don't even need to worry about, they've actually attained. They, they've attained the topmost platform. Any questions? Well, I have a comment regarding when you started out talking about the scene, right? Mm -hmm. The battle scene. And what I was thinking was, uh, it's an extreme situation. You know, it's like a drama. You've got to have, you have, it's, there's urgency and there's conflict. And in that sense, it, it makes it more, uh, more alive. I mean, it'd be different if it was, you know, he and Arjuna were sitting underneath the Bodhi tree, you know, having this discussion. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that's obviously Krishna's arrangement to have it in a scene where Arjuna really has to listen. He really has to listen because, you know, it's life and death situation. And we have to, we, we're put in a situation where we have to listen too. That's all. That's and Krishna, Krishna reinforces that in Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. Doesn't he? Yeah. Generally, what is it? Those that are distressed, those that are in distress either physically or monetarily. Right. Those that are in want of money. Right. Uh, those that are simply inquisitive and the wise. All these four classes generally go to spiritual knowledge. But the distressed we see throughout, especially the Bhagavat. I mean, here we're seeing Arjuna coming, but also there's Gajendra. Who? Gajendra. An elephant? An elephant. Oh, right. Hmm. What was his distress? Somehow or other... That here is this great soul who had practiced spiritual life and begun, the, begun to purify himself 
And somehow, somehow or other, he got pulled off track. But got pulled off track and took the body of an elephant. So with an elephant, an elephant, you know, he's like, this was the king of the elephants, and he was out enjoying in the planetary systems. And he had his whole little tribe of wives. They went off to have a bath. And a crocodile attacks him. And they fight for years, but he's in distress. And what happens from the fighting? Eventually, he's put in so much distress that he remembers prayers that he used to say to the Supreme Lord. And he starts thinking of Krishna, the Supreme Lord, and... The Lord personally comes and, and relieves his distress. He was actually fighting with a crocodile. Crocodile was a little stronger than him in the water. In the land, he could have crushed him in a moment, but not in the water. Dhruva Maharaj, in distress. Not even allowed to sit on the lap of his father, the king. Again and again, we see throughout Bhagavat. Throughout Srimad Bhagavatam, the devotees coming and taking to their devotional practice because of a distressful condition. And that's why at the beginning of the class, I, we also have that same tendency. We generally are, are kind of, God's not in the forefront of our day-to-day -day activities until what? We're put into a distressful condition. Death, disease, we're a little open to hear what the priest has to say. The circumstance is not important. What is important is the message. So if we, if we, come to, if we have the qualification, if we have the interest in our true spiritual life, then Bhagavad Gita will have some profound effect. We'll actually be greatly benefited by, by this knowledge. But if we're still immersed in our exploitive mentality of material existence, then it won't have. But you're right. It, it's, it's setting the scene in, in such a way that, that we can see uh, the position of Arjuna and we can also put our, what do you say? You put, your, uh, put yourself in that person's position. We should also see like that, that we're in a similar condition in material life. It's a battlefield. May not be with bows and arrows, but we have our other battles to fight. Preta likes to battle with the upper, other drivers as she goes down the highway. <laughs> 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 Any questions? After your feasts, are you going to come here and feast on Gita, or is everybody engaged in family affairs? I'm taking a poll. I think we like, I, I would like to come. Yeah. Because Selfina will be home and she's bringing a friend. Yeah. I'd, nice. love, I'd love to be here, but I don't know if anyone else wants to. Sure. Class for you? Uh, well, I'll 
early and I'll just be having You're not going to be Well, if it's sweet potatoes and broccoli, I'll eat it. Or something easy. Steamed vegetables, I'll eat. All right. So we'll have class next week for whoever wants to come. What? We'll have class next week. We're having class on Thanksgiving. Yeah. We can give thanks. And we get to see Archie. Oh, yes. Archie will be 